online, so you can catch up if you missed it. But uh, the beauty about studying the Psalms, I think, is each one of them are in a unit of its own. And I think there is something to be said about the ordering of each Psalm. And um, so hopefully uh, I can help you see that Psalm 5 is Psalm 5 for a reason. And that'll be the text we'll be looking at this morning. So if you turn there in your Bibles, we'll be studying the entire text together. Um, by way of, this is a side note. Um, if you're in the first service, I do want to clarify something. I'm not saying this was intentional or whatever, but you know, when Pastor Glenn's going, when the speaker's going, you know, stuff can happen. Stuff comes out and, you know, uh, and so I want to clarify something to you, uh, Pastor Glenn, something along the lines of scripture as it was being written and figuring out whether that when the inspiration of scripture is. But just to clarify to you um, that scripture is written the moment the thoughts of the spirit enter in the minds of the author in Second Peter. And so uh, the author is carried along by the Holy Spirit in his writing of scripture. So you have First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, all penned and authored by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to clarify that to you so that if you were confused, um, hopefully now you're not. But we're not in that. We're not in 1 Corinthians. We're in Psalm number five. And uh, the title of this sermon I've given is a, a morning manual for prayer. A morning manual for prayer. And so if you follow along, I will read the psalm, and we'll dive right in. Uh, Psalm number five, and this reads, God's word. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own Councils, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteousness, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's read the word of the living God. Uh, Have you ever wrestled with God on your bed? You lie there with uh, thousands upon thousands of thoughts 
uh, swirling in your mind, uh, praying that the Lord would give you relief, the sweet relief of sleep. Uh, Then in the morning you wake up groggy and painful and wishing that you had another hour of it. Uh, I want to ask what causes those nights? What is preventing you from peacefully lying your head down knowing God does not sleep? He does not need it. That he still works and he still sustains. He still intercedes on your behalf, working all things for good, even when you are asleep. So after a night of wrestling with God, As you bring your cares before him and your worries before him and you learn to trust him again through the act of sleep, what are the thoughts that greet you in the morning? The great Baptist preacher of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon, observes, the fittest time for intercourse with God is in the morning as an hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. And so after a long night, after a long week, a a long month of battle with your enemies, with your foes, with yourself, um, those who attack you spiritually, those who attack you physically and emotionally, my question for you is, do you pray? Do you pray? The fifth psalm is the third in a series of alternating morning and evening psalms. If you were with us in December, we walked through the first four psalms, and then you know the occasion of the psalm flips back and forth. David, the persecuted king, is still probably on the run from his usurper son, Absalom. You can imagine the songs and prayers he composes during this time, morning and evening. Morning and evening, one prevailing problem overcomes his mind that he can't think of anything else. Um, His appetite is dashed. His countenance is crushed. Uh, When the problems of life uh, come upon us as a wave crashes upon the rock, we know how difficult it can be to have communion with God. But from this psalm, we learn that communion with God, especially through the means of prayer, is the first thing David sets in order. Uh, The king after God's own heart, with all of his political and familial troubles, orders his life, orders his morning with this first priority. Uh, That in the morning, he will, as he says, prepare a sacrifice or order his prayer and eagerly watch. For us, this is the morning manual for prayer. Uh, There is so much to learn from just these 12 verses concerning righteousness versus wickedness, justice, and mercy. Uh, But I do not want you to miss the point of David's prayer here. It is God who hears prayers as it is God who teaches us how to pray. Uh, Therefore, let us respond in the same way David does that when life is barreling down with all of its circumstances and all of its troubles, um, 
Let us cling on to the righteousness from God alone and let he be our sole vindication. As we walk this Christian life, let us order our lives and muster our spirits to hope in God alone. Now, this psalm is structured in five alternating cries. You have a cry of salvation for righteousness. The, the cry is the cry of the believer in faith. Then you have a cry for justice against wickedness. You have a cry for due process from God, that God would act swiftly and exact the right and necessary judgments upon David's enemies. So you have a psalm structured in this A, B, A, B, A format. Uh, where the goodness of God towards his people is both the focal point, the, the centerpiece, as well as the book ends. Uh, to commit the ultimate literary fallacy of the double negative, uh, there is nowhere one can go they, where they will not be reminded of God's goodness. There is nowhere you can go where you will not be reminded of God's goodness and God's care for his people. Uh, even when wickedness seems to be at every turn, you have the goodness of God presenting itself in all of its glory over and over and over again. Uh, so our study will be broken up into these five alternating stanzas. Uh, first things first is call upon God. Call upon God. Verses one through three. Call upon God. Second, in verses four through six, know this God. Know this God. A third, in verses seven through eight, seven and eight, trust in righteousness. Trust in righteousness. Fourth, two more verses, nine through 10, separate from wickedness. So we have trust in righteousness, then separate from wickedness. And lastly, verses 11 and 12, respond in worship. Respond in worship. So let's, let's look at verses one through three. First, there's a prescript to the choir master for Necholeth, or best translated, best guessed, even by the wisest of scholars, flutes. A psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. There is a comfort from God when he calls us to pray to him. Uh, prayer is the lifeblood for the man and woman of faith. Prayer is more than a direct telephone line to the White House of Heaven, so to speak. It does more than uh, simply allowing you to talk with God. Uh, it is like a, a wedding stone. Anyone ever sharpened a knife? It sharpens your focus on heavenly things. It transports you from this earthly realm with all of its flaws, all of its sins, all of its brokenness to realms on high. Uh, prayer like that is like the better lens your optometrist asks you when he or she tests your eyes. One or two? Two. Two or three? 
Uh, Prayer is that conduit. Prayer is the vehicle that helps you center your thoughts on God. Therefore, when Paul writes, similarly to what we read here, that God gives notice to both the words of prayer as well as the groanings of prayer, we know that, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans eight twenty six. Do not mistake piety with pithiness. Uh, True godliness communes and communicates with God with or without words. Words are simply the handmaiden, uh, the dress, the garment of true communion with God. Uh, Words attend our thoughts in our prayers. Words like that wedding stone, like an eyeglasses, focuses our prayers as prayer focuses our hearts. But our prayers oftentimes need not words. This is the essence of what David is addressing here. David wishes and cries out to God that God would both give ear to his words, lean in with an open ear when it reaches out with thoughts, as well as consider his groaning, consider by evidence of emotion, the countenance, the the frustration, the fluster, God is able to read and know every thought, every intention of our hearts. And so when our groanings are too deep for words, God the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and communicates them to the throne of grace for us. David leads off with these two imperatives. Give ear, give attention. Two commands from a man to God Almighty creator of heaven and earth, the supreme being, the supreme king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. David, the man, the creature made from dust, commands God. Not once, not twice, but three times. Verse two says, David says to God and to give heed Give attention, pay attention to me, direct your gaze, direct your thoughts to me. Heed the sound of my cry for help. What kind of boldness is this? That a man would demand God's attention? I think the answer is found in his address. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. Do not mistake this for high-handed disrespect. David clearly knows the the pecking order of heaven here, the, the, the order and the hierarchy of power and authority. He clearly understood that he was merely a vice regent, a puppet king, a man placed by a higher authority for a task. However, David knew what kind of king, what kind of God he served. It was to him, my king, my God. You sense the familiarity here. You sense the the tightness David had with Yahweh. You sense that much like how Moses was in the presence of God on the mountain, uh, David in his cave, hiding from his usurping son, can go before the presence of God with complete 
boldness and claim and call upon God and know that God will hear and answer him. God does hear and God does answer because of this first person personal pronoun. Uh, Not the God, not a God, but my God, our God. And that indicates belonging, a term that indicates that we are on the same side, the same team. Uh, The author of Hebrews notes that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry and living God. But in this case, for every man and woman of faith, there is no fear. Rather, there is peace. There is comfort because God is on our side. And so David prays to no one else. For you, to you, do I pray. End of verse two. Only to God. Only to Yahweh. Look at when he does this. He does this in the morning. Verse three. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, there is a common phrase that describes David's emotion here. Uh, I'm a big Batman fan, so The Dark Knight's one of my favorite movies, and in that movie, Harvey Dent quotes this line, and I think it's especially helpful and pertinent in this situation. He says, the night is darkest only before the dawn. What does that mean? Meaning that after a night's worth of wrestling, after a night's worth of lamenting, after a night's worth of struggling, it is only as dawn, right before, uh, only as dark, excuse me, as right before dawn breaks because of how long that period of night was. But as dawn breaks, his mercies are more. His mercies are new. And we are reminded in prayer that now is the best time to go to God. This is not an argument for a specific time to pray like in the religion of Islam, uh, but rather it is a response to the mercy of God. David saying that in the morning when physical light breaks through physical darkness, it is a reminder that God is still working, that spiritual light is breaking through spiritual darkness. So a day has ended, a new one has begun. Therefore, let us praise the Lord. Therefore, in the morning, the first thing you hear, David says, O Yahweh, is my voice, will be my voice. It is my first action. It is my first realization. It is my first response to the new mercies found on dewdrops and sunbeams. Prayer is the first response to the mercy of God. Furthermore, in parallel fashion, David says it again. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In the morning, I will order or I will prepare. Uh, The range of this term is massive and I'm preaching out of the ESV. Uh, So they did some interpretive liberties and added prepare a sacrifice for you. Um, But the meaning is broad. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what David will order, but I think the ESV gets it right. I think the closest image we have is like when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he was facing off against the prophets of Baal and he set in order a proper sacrifice to demonstrate to those false worshipers that God responds only to the right worshiper. It's like a priest 
preparing a sacrifice. The, the woods and the logs and the sacrifice and the animal must be properly arranged and in a proper place. There's an ordering to worship. Order, orderly worship pleases God, he says, for he's not a God of chaos, but of order and sound mind. That is why the church historically has called the sequence of our service the order of worship. A liturgy reflects reverence. So David prepares himself. He sets in order his prayers for the purpose of bringing the right sacrifice from the right heart to God. And he, as he offers his prayers, as a priest would offer a sacrifice, he watches. He waits in godly anticipation. When, you're, when you call upon God in deep distress, uh, the right response is, of course, not to grumble. It is not to complain. It is not to raise up your hands in deference and say, well, that was worth my two minutes of prayer. That didn't work. No. When the man and the woman of faith prays in faith, the response of faith is what? Wait on the Lord. Psalm 20 says, be of good courage. Wait on the Lord. Um, It is to wait and watch the Lord work. It is to pass the baton of your cares and your troubles to the Lord and say to him that you can take care of this. Because I know that I cannot. So order your prayers and prepare your hearts to watch the Lord be Lord. Watch him sovereignly shape and guide your lives and your concerns and your troubles, your pain, all to the end of your good and his glory. Uh, This is where it begins, the, the break of dawn, the first of the day you call upon God. Next, however, David's not done here. You must know this God. You must know this God, verses four through six. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David moves to rehearse truth to catechize and re-catechize himself. There are certain truths depending upon each and every situation we must rehearse. We must reteach ourselves in order that our hope is not placed in vain. There is an assurance to be won when we rehearse the truths of God, when we practice in what uh, J.I. Packer calls God's sustained initiative to knowing me. As we seek God to know him more and more, we know and we discover that it is God who knows us. It's God who knows us. He knows us better than an acquaintance at work. He knows us better than a husband knows a wife or a wife knows a husband. He knows. He knows and he cares. So therefore, he knows how fallen we are. He knows how evil and how selfish we can be. He knows that the wicked that assail us and attack us, he knows them and he also knows that we are not that much different. But he also knows that there is one difference 
one chief difference that makes the world of difference. He knows our faith. He knows our faith. So in faith, David is to make these claims concerning the wicked. He does so in the context that God knows these character traits. He knows about God's holiness and his righteousness. He knows that God cannot abide with sin, nor does he take pleasure in wickedness. So David notes first God's holiness. God is perfectly good. There is no trace of evil that can be found in God. Evil may not dwell with you. Evil is diametrically opposed to God. There is a clear line in the sand drawn between God and what is good and evil. What is not good. He goes to describe the the boastful or the foolish that they will not stand before the Lord. Similarly to Psalm 1, one of the gateway psalms, um, wicked, the wicked there cannot stand in the judgment either. Uh, The foolish, the boastful, or simply the sinner cannot be in the presence of God as they will be judged by him toward the end of their destruction. Furthermore, God hates all who do iniquity, all who turn justice on its head. Uh, He will act to destroy those who speak falsehood, he says. Um, Speak lies. Uh, Those who call good evil and evil good. Uh, These violent men God will ultimately destroy as he, what does it say, abhors them. They cannot be in his presence. Do you see God's holiness in this way? Do you understand his character reflecting off of the wickedness of man? This is not a point about his grace, but rather it is the reality that God cannot abide in the presence of evil. If evil exists, he must do something about it for him to be God. He must judge, he must destroy. So therefore, the wicked evildoer, there should be a rightful perspective that yes, evil must be judged. For then, for the, for the gracious recipients of God's favor and love, there must be a right understanding that yes, it is very good and right for God to act out of his righteousness and holiness. Therefore, for us, when we are slandered, when we are betrayed, when we are attacked, we can cling to God and recount how God views these people. We can know this God. God says, vengeance is mine. Therefore, we can be sure that he will do something about it. And so, this brings us to our third point. And I would commend to you the the center of our psalm. The focus, the central theme, trust in righteousness. Here we are at the seventh verse, and David finally moves to make his request known. I simply have to ask you, does this model your prayers? Do you pray concerning God's listening ear and God's character and your relationship you have with him, all these things, all these truths you rehearse, do you pray about all these things before you're making your request known to God? Or do you simply cut to the chase and lay lay out all of your requests like a laundry list to Santa Claus? 
Do you think and you meditate and you converse with God and you're reminded to him, you call out to him? Do you meditate on his character? God is God and he cannot abide with wickedness. God is God and we are not. We are sinful. We are the wicked. God is holy. He's righteous. He's good. His grace abounds more than sin abounds because that is the nature of himself. So David finally, in verse 7, acknowledges what he is before God. By God's abundant loving kindness, his enduring love, his faithful love, his chesed, the term beloved by saints of both Old and New Testaments, only according to this enduring, steadfast, abundant love can David meet with God. David has been on the run but he prays that he shall return. He shall go to the house of the Lord. I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. A common theme that is posed again and again in the Psalms is what kind of man, what kind of woman can approach God? Who can ascend God's holy hill? Who can enter into his house? Who can abide with God and without being previously mentioned, being utterly destroyed? The one whose God's steadfast, abounding love is set upon. That is who. Only those who know and have experienced this kind of love can be with God. You see the unilateral action of God. God moves at his prerogative. He initiates and he acts and he sets his love upon those wicked sinners. So David can only respond with confidence knowing that he will once more be at God's holy temple to bow and to worship. If you recall, at this time, the temple has not been built yet. That will be built later by his son. But David is seeing what's come to know as the temple, as the tent of meeting, as the house of worship where he wants to be. David meditates and cries out in so many of the Psalms how his chief desire is to be with God in his house, meditating on him and his truth. That's what David yearned for. So in verse eight, David finally makes his request, his petition. It is a request that a request that we all should take note of. There is no deliverance from his enemies here. Though they are mentioned in brief, there is no request to remove them or take them away or take away any pain, any trouble, remove the thorn. There's none of that. It is simply David requests that God would lead. God would lead and David will follow. David is essentially saying, Yahweh, continue to do what you have been doing and my soul will be set. It will be at peace. It is in essence a similar prayer Jesus will teach his disciples. That God may not lead them into temptation. David again calls upon that truly happy man in Psalm 1. Where in the meditation of God and God's law, in the meditation of God's character, the truly happy man, his paths are made straight. Those foes are mentioned here because of my enemies, he says. They give rise to this kind of prayer. 
but focus on the fact that David does not focus on them. They are just an afterthought, an aside that David briefly recognizes, but turns his heart's gaze once more to God. This is the center of David's prayer, that righteousness will prevail as it always has prevailed. That is an exercise you and I can learn. We can learn to rehearse truth that God has not changed, that truth has not changed. Our feelings have changed as our circumstances have changed, yes, but God's character has not changed. Therefore, righteousness is still righteousness as justice will continue to be justice and mercy will continue to be mercy. God will continue to seek and to do good for those who love him. That is a truth we can take to the bank again and again. It's a check we can cash again and again. Not once, not twice, but for the rest of eternity. So after this prayer, David resolves himself. After he has rehearsed all these truths and he has made his mind, he has made his petition known, this is how he'll respond. That he'll separate from wickedness. He'll separate from wickedness, verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouths. There's no truth that he can meditate concerning the wicked. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. David announces the character of the wicked. He calls them out. He describes them for what they truly are. No truth or unreliable At their core, they are set for destruction, their inmost self. Their throat, indicating their words, their speech, is an open grave. Whosoever gives ear to them will fall in and by indication, by implication, will die. Those who follow their words. Their tongues flatter. They spit falsehood falsehood for personal benefit. Notice how David focuses on speech here. You will know people for who they are by their words. From blatant slander to that sweet-talking flattery. You will recognize people in their character by their words. And that's why for young and old Christians, the tongue is so important to tame. Flattery is so easy. Flattery seeks self in the, gaze of, uh, in the guise of seeking others. The smokescreen. Therefore, it is God who will hold them guilty. Look at how David is not pursuing his enemies. He's not pursuing his usurping son or routing them and bringing them to justice and to shame. That's not David's role. He leaves it for God. That is the essence of separating from wickedness. You have nothing to do with them. You don't try to reform them. You don't try to persuade them. And you definitely don't make your bed with them, as Scripture says. You let them be. They are pearls before swine. You shake off the dust of your sandals. And you move on. And I'm sure at this moment you're wondering, well, how does this have to do with the gospel? How does this have to do with the gospel? 
Where does our roles as speakers and friends of the gospel play into this? Shouldn't we love our enemies as Jesus taught us? Yes. Yes, you should. Now, this is a case for both and. You should both entrust your judgment on the wicked to God and you should love them. But ultimately, like any person who understands the righteousness of God and pursues that righteousness, you know that you cannot have righteousness as well as having wickedness. There will come a point in which God will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. There will come a point where God will judge the wicked and save the righteous. And yes, it is only through the blood of Jesus, as we remembered this morning, that can cover one's wickedness, that can make one's wickedness be seen as righteousness, on, not on own, our own account, but on the account of Christ. And that is the message we will, we will sing, we will plead, we will beg over and over again to our lost ones, lost loved ones, as long as we have breath but recognize how Godward focused David is here. David loves God as he loves God for his righteousness. And so he understands that as long as there are rebellious people, the rebellious must be punished. For righteousness to be saved, wickedness must be punished. These two must go hand in hand. And so we are to be in the world but not of it. We are to befriend for the purposes of the gospel and the gospel alone, not for the purpose of our own pleasure or our own agenda or our own allegiances. Separation from wickedness is a necessary and deliberate choice for every Christian to make every single day. On the flip side, it's what you call pursuing holiness. Finally, David responds in worship. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David concludes with hope. He is confident that his prayer is as good as answered. There is gladness. There is Joy now because David has shot these prayers into the heavens and God has listened. Those who take refuge in God, those who take refuge in him in prayer, you find relief. You find gladness. When you wrestle and pray and you lay all of your concerns at his feet, what is the result? How do you feel when you finish praying? When you've given all that you've got to God? You feel relieved feel assured, you feel comforted. And this allows you to, to sing, David says. It allows this, this allows you to exalt or praise God's name. Worship from a deep, abiding knowledge of God's presence. David concludes that it is again God, the one who blesses. It is God who lifts our face, lifts our countenance, Uh, The righteous man, like in Psalm 1, is blessed by God. David gives one final illustration here. As God blesses, he surrounds his righteous ones with favor 
or electing love as a shield. There is a hand of protection always upon those people in faith. The world calls this a variety of random things. They call it guardian angel, good karma, luck, whatever. Before the believer, this is tangible sovereignty at work. And nothing ever comes to a man or woman of faith outside of the sovereignty of God. And therefore, as we live our lives with the confidence knowing that God has preordained and pre-established our steps, there is truly nothing to fear. And lastly, Jesus made his disciples a promise that as the church gathers, he promises that he is with them in their midst. So as the church moves to herald the gospel in this dying and wicked world, we have the presence of Christ surrounding us. We have his Holy Spirit, his helper abiding with us as a shield. And therefore, we will never be forsaken. We will never be outside the realm of God's sovereign love. And this is only true because at the right moment, at the preordained time, the second person, Jesus, the son, he was forsaken. The fellowship, the the shield that his father provided for him was lowered that dark night as Christ hung on the cross that up until that point, as the gospel writers mentioned, no one can touch Christ. Christ was perfectly secure in his father. All of that was for the express purpose of experiencing what we should have experienced. We should have been forsaken. We are the recipients to grace as we are, should be like the wicked here. We should have been destroyed. We should be like the speakers of falsehood. But Christ took that all for us. So therefore, we as adopted brothers and sisters in Christ share in this shield of protection that Christ shared with his Father. That until the appointed time, we are perfectly secure. And therefore, let us entrust ourselves much like how David did, much like how our Savior did, And in the meantime, in our trusting, uh, let us go to God in prayer. And for those of you who, this makes no sense, that in your mind you, you do not understand sovereignty, you don't understand this electing love, you don't see anything as favor covering you as a shield, know that the opportunity, the opportunity for salvation is available. That if you believe in Christ and you recognize that you are this wicked person that David is fleeing from, you are the same, then you can have salvation. You can have the same comfort, the same assurance that David did. Let us go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we know that by the blood of your son, Jesus, When we read the Psalms, we find a deep connection to them. We know that the faith that we have is a faith that we share with all the saints through all the ages. We know that as the Psalms minister to saints of old, they can minister to us now. And so, Lord, let us have the hope. Let us have the the confidence as David did to 
uh, like an archer, shoot our prayers into the heavens, knowing that you hear, that you give an ear, that you consider our groanings. And God, may it be for our good that we would trust in your working, that we may in turn lift all these things up, recount all of your goodness uh, for the praise and honor of your glory. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.